You are tuned to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Thanks for listening today as we really begin to unpack the process of how traditional pottery is made. So uh, what today's talk will center on is how traditional potters prepare materials for pottery production. I'll highlight some of the important steps in the sequence of producing pottery. And we'll also talk a little bit about the kind of archaeological signatures that some of these activities uh, may leave behind at archaeological sites um, or actually in uh, archaeological sherds of pottery. So this is going to be a bit of a connector topic, if you will, between last week's episode, which covered really how multiple disciplines conceive of clay and temper, um, and next week's episode, uh, which is going to dial in on forming techniques and really more nuts and bolts of the manufacturing process. So today we address really the underlying principles regarding how traditional pottery was made. But first, what I want to do is talk with you a little bit about how uh, we as archaeologists who are, uh, you know, usually confronted with an incomplete picture of the past, how we have been able to reconstruct the potter's behaviors that we're going to be laying out today. So to access this information, we're looking at a different source. Uh, we're actually going to be consulting um, a classic work by Owen Rye, who wrote a manual for archaeologists uh, that's titled Pottery Technology, Principles and Reconstruction. Uh, and this was first published in 1981. Now, uh, Owen Rye is an anthropologist who conducted uh, what we call ethnographic fieldwork on traditional pottery making societies in Pakistan, Egypt, Palestine, and Papua New Guinea. Rai is also a potter himself, who brings over 15 years of potting experience uh, to the production of the book. I'll go ahead and link you to Rai's website in your learning path, uh, where you'll have the option to read a little bit more about him. And you can actually take a look at his uh, digital pottery portfolio there as well. So according to Rai, you know, th this manual that he wrote was something that was born out of his, uh, to quote him directly, his, quote, personal experience with archaeologists, which left me with the impression that many are not familiar with the principles of pottery making, end quote. So, you know, clearly, Rye saw that there was an opportunity for cultural anthropologists and modern potters to make a meaningful contribution to archaeology. Identifying gaps in the literature is really one of the first steps in locating any kind of research topic. So, uh, you know, as you, my listeners, are reading, um, are reading all the assignments this term, you might also sort of like make like Rye and note gaps that you are identifying in the literature that we're reading as a class. And I mention it because this may be a nice springboard into your research paper topic, uh, which we're gonna talk a little bit more about soon. Um, but Rye, among other anthropologists, are part of this, what we call ethno-archeology span movement 
in pottery studies. And I want to spend a few moments talking with you about ethno-archaeological pottery studies before we really go into laying out the uh, production sequence, um, because we want to get an appreciation of where all of this good knowledge is coming from. So at a most uh, basic level, you know, I think we can define ethnoarchaeology as a study of contemporary people to determine how human behavior may be translated into the archaeological record. Now, uh, Kathy Costin has done quite a bit of work on ethnoarchaeological pottery and actually wrote one of the recommended articles for this week titled The Use of Ethnoarchaeology for the Archaeological Study of Ceramic Production, uh, which was published in the year 2000. On ethno-archaeological study, uh, studies of pottery, Costin uh, remarks they, quote, have long served as a critical source of hypotheses, comparative data, and explanatory frameworks for archaeologists interested in describing and explaining ceramic production, end quote. Michelle Hegmond has also worked in the field of ceramic ethnoarchaeology, and uh, she wrote one of the required articles for us this week, uh, which is coming to us from the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory. So, you know, in a similar vein, uh, Hegman says that ethnoarchaeology can illuminate a lot of things. Uh, she gets more specific, though, uh, things like how pots were made cross-cultural variability of pottery. Ethnoarchaeology may be able to pick up on a sort of a collective sense of belonging. Uh, the pottery may have uh, held for people of the past, uh, the symbolic nature of pottery, and really the complex ways that people of the past appropriated pottery. These are kind of hard to see in the archaeological record. Heckman also remarks how a more modern approach to ceramic ethnoarchaeology, uh, quote, has been to study the rapidly disappearing traditional potters who still practice their craft in a few areas of the world uh, today. So ethnoarchaeology can help us uh, sort of uh, uh, flesh out our archaeological interpretations. But another aim of ethnoarchaeology is also uh, really to document uh, 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 disappearing uh, traditional uh, pottery crafts. Heckman highlights uh, some real important advancements made in ethnoarchaeology in her article uh, that we're reading this week, um, and I'll leave you to read about that. But she argues here that ethnoarchaeology has done much really to contribute in the way of social theory. And I want to mention that aspect because it's been a real sort of Achilles heel for archaeology. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, one of the real larger critiques of archaeology as a discipline has been its relevancy to social thought. So ethnoarchaeology sort of, you know, gives archaeology a seat, if you will, at the table of social thought. And I think one of the messages that I take away from uh, Hegman's article is how static, oversimplified, and, you know, dare I say, vapid archaeological interpretations can be at times. 
sometimes it seems as if archaeological interpretations are uh, sanitized of culture and the human element when they're compared to these, you know, what we call in cultural anthropology, these very thick descriptive ethnographies that cultural anthropologists uh, craft. But perhaps ethnoarchaeology, you know, really has some medicine here for archaeology. When paired with the archaeological record, ethnographic studies really, you know, I think have the ability to energize, enliven, and humanize archaeological research. You know, as archaeologists, we're only left with tatters of the past to make sense of. So we have this, you know, rather incomplete picture of what life may have been like. Um, but we really can't lose sight of the fact that these communities that we endeavor to learn about that existed so long in the past, that these communities were lived in by people who were enmeshed in very complex social and cultural systems. So uh, now that we've established that ethnoarchaeology has made this significant contribution to our knowledge base on pottery, I think we're now ready to pivot back to the pottery as craft side of the discussion, which is how raw materials uh, are obtained. And we finally get to talk about the making process, which is a personal favorite, as we lay out the production sequence. So, you know, now as archaeologists, as we are, we're interested in how we can reconstruct human behavior based on material evidence. So as we're talking through this segment of the episode together, I'd like to invite listeners to think about the kind of archaeological traces the pottery production sequence might leave behind. So in other words, what signature would these behaviors leave behind that would serve as a clue to an archaeologist that pottery making took place here? So the production sequence necessarily begins with harvesting the clay that would be necessary to produce pottery. This is a task that the potter may do herself or perhaps even delegate uh, to an assistant or a young person uh, who is still learning uh, the craft. Near rivers, streams, creeks, and channels uh, tend to be pretty good places to search for clay though this need not always be the case. Materials may also uh, need to be traded for if a potter doesn't have direct access to, uh, to a source of the raw material. Rye notes that uh, clays are simply not chosen at random within a deposit, but rather are carefully selected or targeted for appropriate properties uh, when there is the option to do so. Now, very coarse impurities, uh, such as chunks of gravel and rock, might actually be removed at the site of the clay source. Uh, these are heavy and useless things. No need to carry those back to the workshop. So then the suitable clay will probably need to be further processed to separate out uh, any smaller but yet still large unwanted inclusions. It's very rare for a potter to use clay that's in its sort of like raw, natural, waterlogged state. 
There are a few traditional techniques potters use to begin processing raw clay, and we'll highlight a few. Uh, most simply, clay may be spread evenly to dry out in the sun, and coarse potter, uh, excuse me, coarse particles may uh, simply be hand-picked uh, out of the body. Or uh, raw clay may be sieved. This is where water is added uh, to the clay to form a fluid, and then that fluid is strained through a fine gauge sieve or mesh. The sieve actually catches unwanted coarse material, while those light clay particles uh, and water pass through into a, a bucket or a pit. Another option uh, to process clay is what we call settling. Uh, and this is where uh, enough water is added to a clay to form a slip. Uh, a slip is like a slurry suspension of fluid and clay. So the slip is formed and then it's actually poured uh, into a bucket or a pit. So the coarse material settles to the bottom of the pit. Uh, it's heavier, it'll sink, uh, allowing a potter to easily skim off the desirable clay particles, the finer fraction that will ultimately float to the top. One other option to process clay is what we call levigation. So with levigation, a slip uh, will also need to be prepared, but then it's poured into a sloping channel that's outfitted with a kind of lip or catchment area to trap that coarse material. Again, the same principle, the lighter fraction will rise to the top uh, where it can be collected. You know, we can actually sometimes see levigation in fired pottery sherds. Fired clay bodies that have super fine mineral particles of less than 50 microns uh, were actually probably levigated. So now, whichever technique is used to process the clay, uh, the clay will then be set out to dry in the sun. It's really important to begin the making process with dry processed clay, uh, just to make sure that unwanted inclusions are removed, but also that moisture can be very evenly distributed through the body. So once the clay is processed uh, and dry, uh, water's added to create uh, plasticity. Additives like temper uh, can also be introduced to the body at this time, uh, usually uh, between 10%, but can be upwards to 50 to 80% uh, to make the mass more workable and to also convey strength uh, to the body to support it during the firing stage, um, which we're finally going to get to talk a little bit about uh, in a few minutes. Now, some tempers, uh, like sand, for example, actually don't require a lot of preparation, if any at all, while others really do. Um, rock, quartz, and grog temper uh, definitely needs to be uh, processed. It will need to be crushed or ground down uh, using a stone, an anvil, or another tool. Uh, marine shell and coral, uh, used in so many parts of the world as a temper also needs to be crushed too. Um, actually, shell and coral can at times be quite preferable tempers, 
because their thermal expansion is very similar to that of fired clay. So uh, shell-tempered vessels may have less of a chance of breaking when exposed to heat. Um, however, though, very high firing temperatures can be damaging for shell-tempered pottery. And we're going to revisit that point in a moment. Um, but hard materials like these, like shell, stone, uh, uh, can sometimes be easily identified as temper uh, rather than, uh, say, a naturally occurring thing in the clay by inspecting the edges of the temper in the profile of a fired pottery sherd. Sharp and angular fragments uh, of these materials, for example, uh, are, can be very diagnostic of crushing, of grinding. Plant temper uh, also requires some processing as well. Uh, the plants necessarily will need to be gathered, um, but also chopped uh, using a sharp tool. Um, in agricultural societies, uh, agricultural waste uh, may be used as plant temper, um, but so can grass and straw. Uh, plant tempers convey, uh, they can convey desirable properties uh, to the body they actually cut down on some of the uh, shrinking that can take place as a vessel dries. Now in archeological pottery, we may not see actual bits of plant temper because the plant material does tend to burn off during firing. But what we can see in sherds that sort of clue us off that plant temper was used are uh, specially shaped voids where the plant material uh, may have been. So you can, um, sort of distinguish plant-tempered pottery from natural plant inclusions by examining the shape of the void. Voids that are, uh, say, more uniform in size and shape um, are probably diagnostic of a plant temper, whereas natural plant inclusions would probably leave more irregularly uh, shaped voids uh, that really vary in size. Now, archaeological and ethnographic evidence seems to suggest to us that salt was an additive to some clay bodies um, and actually improved their workability um, uh, and ability to, to survive firing. And I really do like Stibble and colleagues' article on coping with bad raw materials uh, from, their, uh, really, from the really great book, Archaeological Ceramics, which was published by the, Smith, uh, the Smithsonian Institute uh, in 1982. So uh, their work covers really salt's behavior uh, during the firing process. So in their article, the archaeologists remark on, you know, the impressive Mississippian potting tradition, uh, which it is, you know, it has all real, like, you know, all the hallmarks of great craftsmanship. But what's puzzling is how this was achieved, considering Mississippian potters were exploiting, you know, what we call these smectite clays, which, as we've said in a previous episode, can be difficult uh, to work with because they take on so much water. Um, and they also can really shrink during the drying process because uh, so much water uh, is driven out. It evaporates. So shell temper may help ameliorate some of this in that it can absorb some of the moisture content. Um, and Stimmel and colleagues do note for us that shell temper was widely used in Mississippian pottery. 
Shell temper, though, typically can't tolerate high firing temperatures, even though smectite clays may indeed require a high fire. So what puzzled archaeologists is how this shell temper preserved in the matrix of the body, despite that the firing atmosphere was above that critical threshold. So we see how they draw on ethnographic and archaeological evidence to speculate that potters may have added a small percentage of salt. I'm talking on the order of about, I think they say 0.5%, just enough to stabilize shell-tempered pottery. So only a negligible amount of salt was needed to stabilize the pottery, um, but such a small amount uh, may not show up on uh, diagnostic tests. So after a potter mixes in whatever additives are necessary, uh, the mass must then be kneaded properly to distribute air, moisture, um, and these added materials. So we think that foot kneading was a very common method used in antiquity to blend materials together. And I think what I'll do is link you to a video um, on this so you can see what we mean by foot kneading. A smaller batches, uh, by comparison, were probably more easily kneaded by hand. Um, in either method, though, kneading continues until materials are thoroughly blended with the body, um, and the body can be brought to what is called a workable plastic state. Potters then may proceed with wedging. Uh, they may wedge the mass at this stage to ensure uh, even distribution of moisture and additives. So wedging uh, is when a potter uh, literally cuts the mass of clay in half and slaps or even slams uh, one half onto the other. Upwards of 20 wedging cycles uh, might actually take place at this time. A potter uh, might certainly decide to omit the wedging step um, if necessary and just proceed with hand kneading until everything is evenly distributed. Wedging or hand kneading at this stage, uh, to quote Rye, uh, quote, is repeated until the potter judges from feel and appearance that the moisture and inclusions are evenly distributed, end quote. Uh, so, you know, to me, this is just another example, another testament to the intuition that a potter hones over her lifetime. And what I find so fascinating here are like the ways that traditional potters are able to sense that clay is just ready, that it's ready to be formed, it's ready to be shaped. And I'd like to quote Rye here again, who says, quote, methods of evaluating clays include taste, which will indicate whether soluble salts are present. Biting moist clay can reveal fine grit undetectable by touch. And when clays have been soured, which might be a good thing, by the way, uh, their suitability can be judged by smell, end quote. Now, um, Fired pottery does provide some clues to us as to how much a potter may have needed a body. So fired bodies that have lots of voids, uh, varying sizes, uh, might indicate a lighter need, meaning there's lots of air pockets still in there. 
Um, in contrast, a thoroughly kneaded body will have a smaller number of air pockets, and those that may appear in the body are going to look uh, rather fine, rather small in size. Now, there are many techniques for forming pottery, and all we're going to do is just highlight a few here. We're just going to mention them, uh, knowing that we're actually going to return to this in some detail during the next episode. So one of the simplest forming techniques is what we call pinching, where a lump of clay is pinched and shaped by a potter. Uh, coiling is another technique that involves rolling uh, snake-like coils of clay and then stacking them on top of each other. Uh, the coils are, are then going to be blended by hand, um, and the body may be beat with a paddle or an anvil uh, just to refine uh, that vessel's shape. Um, so those are hand-making techniques. Uh, pottery may also be thrown, uh, thrown on a wheel, uh, which revolves the clay mass so that, um, you know, again, to quote right here, quote, so that fresh working faces are presented continuously for the potter to shape. Pottery must then be left to dry until uh, it reaches the leather hard stage, uh, which is when enough water evaporates for the clay to lose its characteristic plasticity. This is a time when excess material may be removed or trimmed uh, from the base of vessels that were thrown on a wheel. Um, this is called turning. Um, during the leather hard stage, uh, handles and other appendages uh, may be attached. Potters might prefer to apply some decoration here uh, during leather hard, uh, like incising and combing. Um, and this really ensures clean, uh, a clean cut and clean edges. Uh, if we were to apply those while wet, um, the edges really wouldn't look that great. Uh, stamps, seals, uh, as well as burnishing or polishing uh, that's achieved by like rubbing a stone over the vessel walls might also be applied uh, when the body is leather hard. In some cases, uh, potters mit might apply slips and glazes, uh, though usually that's saved for a little bit later. So additional drying will need to uh, definitely occur before firing. And as we've said in a previous episode, uh, potters are just so particular about the conditions in which their wares uh, uh, dry in. So Rye remarks again on this concept of honed intuition that, quote, potters become aware of appropriate drying rates for the materials they use and employ this knowledge in conjunction with observation of the microclimate to minimize damage, end quote. So fluctuating temps uh, and humidity can be just disastrous for pots. So potters, you'll see, uh, can go to great lengths at times to really have control at this stage. So for example, in a hot and dry climates, uh, vessels might actually need to be placed in the shade uh, away from direct sun. We don't want things to dry too fast. Uh, whereas in cool and wet climates, uh, potters like have the opposite problem. Uh, they may need to dry their wares in a heated room. And interestingly, Rye is telling us that the pottery production, uh, that pottery production may in fact be a seasonal craft for communities. Um, 
and it might not be practiced year-round, um, some communities may need to stop pottery production in cool and damp months um, if properly heated environments uh, can't be secured or maintained. So uh, vessels need to be completely dry um, in order to receive some other decorative techniques. So we're beyond the leather hard stage now, but still before firing. So some decorative techniques like wiped slip and painted decoration, uh, these are best to apply when the pot is completely dry, but before it's fired. This is also usually when uh, most glazes are applied, uh, when a pot is completely dry. Though some glazes uh, probably can be applied during the leather hard stage, as we said. So some common glazes used in antiquity were lead, alkaline, lime feldspar, and salt. Lead glazes were very, very common because the raw material, excuse me, the raw material for it, uh, ores and galenas, are found kind of widely ar around the world. But um, lead glazes are actually rather poisonous, as you can imagine, especially if they're not compounded correctly. They're also really concerning to eat off of uh, because one could be exposed to small bits of lead as the dish wears out and the glaze begins to deteriorate. Alkaline glazes uh, are usually transparent and have a bit of a shine to them making them really kind of great for sealing in painted decoration. Alkaline glazes, though, will craze, however, uh, meaning that they'll form a fine network of cracks uh, in the fired glaze surface. Lime feldspar glazes are very hard and very durable, on the other hand, um, and some early examples appear to have actually been caused by wood ash, we think. So the next stage in the production sequence is firing. Uh, we're also going to talk about salt glazing. I don't want you to think I forgot that, but we can't talk about salt glazing until we get through firing. Um, so here, as we talk about firing, as we introduce it, I again want to emphasize that vessels really need to be bone dry before firing begins. Um, a pot that is being fired uh, with moisture content in it actually runs, <clears throat> excuse me, a real risk of, uh, of rupturing because moisture so quickly converts into steam. Uh, vessels need to experience enough heat for a prolonged period to turn ceramic, which is what gives pottery its hardness and stability. So at minimum, the firing area needs to reach uh, between 500 and 700 degrees uh, Celsius. So uh, traditional pottery is usually open fired, meaning that the firing process does not happen in a kiln, but rather in an outdoor earthen uh, firing pit where vessels and fuel uh, might very well sit side by side. So animal dung, um, grass, straw, wood, and sticks uh, would probably be used as fuel, uh, though dung may be preferred because it actually burns slower and a bit more uniformly than some uh, plant material fuel. Uh, and interestingly, large sherds of broken, uh, perhaps misfired pottery 
are usually placed on top of the pile uh, as a kind of insulation that serves to keep heat trapped in. Um, some traditional pottery, though, may also have been fired in a kiln. And there are two variations of kilns that I'd like to highlight for you here. One version situates vessels and fuel together, and a second kind of kiln burns the fuel in a firebox or a chamber that is separate from the vessels, but uh, still close enough to allow heat to pass into the chamber that is storing the vessels that are firing. Now here's where we're gonna talk about salt glaze just for a second. If a vessel is to be glazed with salt, it's applied during firing uh, by actually just throwing common salt into the kiln or into the firebox. There it combines with the clay body um, and actually forms a glaze right on the surface. Um, kilns I know are often thought of as an advancement um, and they can be, but at times they might not in fact be, however. And on this, uh, Rye remarks, quote, kilns do not always represent an advance over open, uh, excuse me, over open firing techniques, end quote, because kilns may limit temperature and have such a wide range in temperature variation at peak firing. Um, the firing atmosphere uh, can also have a great impact on vessels. Um, the atmosphere is controlled uh, really by the amount of air uh, that's available uh, to burn and the amount of fuel that's supplied. So what's called a reducing condition occurs when insufficient air is provided, when there's not enough air. Neutral uh, conditions uh, may be ideal, and these are achieved um, uh, when the ratio of air to fuel is sufficient enough to allow a complete combustion without uh, using excess fuel or air. And what is called an oxidizing condition occurs when too much air gets into the firing atmosphere. So after the firing stage um, has ended, a potter's uh, work may not be done quite yet. A potter might choose to brush or even rub uh, things into the surface of warm, uh, of fired but yet still warm pottery, um, things like resin, pitch, or gum. Um, a potter may also add a coating to the surface at this time to seal it or make it impermeable. This is very important for containers that were used to store water and other kinds of liquids, especially expensive liquids like perfume, oil, or wine. Cooking pots, however, uh, may not need any sealing, though, uh, as it would just burn off when that pot's used as cookware. So cooking pots are probably done after firing. And unless a potter is involved in distributing their wares or doing market sales, this is usually where the end of the production uh, sequence is. So in our next episode, we'll be dialing in on forming techniques so you definitely don't want to miss out on that, um, especially if you're like me and you have this interest uh, in making things and the craft of potting. 
So on that note, thank you so much for listening to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Have an awesome week and take good care.